Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We're going to be here uh, this week and, and look again at, a, at another part of the life of Christ that isn't uh, shown to us in Matthew. Half of the story of it is and half of it isn't really the second half uh, that we'll get to today. As we, as we track through this, I'll go ahead and share my screen with you again, and you can uh, see what our, what our notes will look like this morning. We're going to see from this passage, uh, in particular, as Jesus focuses on a couple of Gentiles um, as, he, as he works through this uh, passage, that Jesus loves the nations. His ministry is largely in Israel, but here we see a focus that he has on the nations through these Gentile people, particularly this first woman, this Syrophoenician woman. As Jesus has traveled around uh, Israel, he's largely ministered here around the Sea of Galilee. This is in the northern part of Israel. When you travel far north here, you see Tyre and Sidon. So we'll see uh, this passage or this area, this geographical area come into play today. Then we see also Jesus travel to the Decapolis. Now, these areas are a long way apart in terms of geographical distance, some 120 miles. But one thing they have in common is that they are both largely Gentile regions. So this is a contrast from uh, the bulk of Jesus's ministry. As we travel through this today, we're going to see that the Word of God finds its highest glory in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Word of God finds its highest glory in the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, all that God has written and all that God has revealed is intended to point our hearts, our minds, our lives toward Jesus. We're going to see a few key things here. Uh, first, in the life of Christ, Jesus longs for solitude. There's this rhythm of seeking rest in Jesus's life. But secondly, Jesus isn't um, solitary in the sense of, of selfishly being to himself. He exercises great power in ministry. We see him exercise power over demons and discrimination first in the life of this Gentile woman, then power over senses and disability in the life of, of a deaf mute man after this. And we see people's response after this, and people respond in amazement to who Jesus is, but not true worship. People respond in amazement, but not true worship. So this is what we'll see as we track through this passage together. And I'll try to read those out clearly as we go along too, so that you can uh, catch them if you, if you didn't catch them in the first round, or you can look them up in your email as well. I'll begin reading in Mark 7, uh, verse 24. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he couldn't be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. 
And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. So today we come to these two geographical regions. They're far apart in distance and yet very similar in terms of their ethnic makeup. No doubt some Jews live in these regions, these outlying regions, but largely they're occupied by Gentiles. Mark throws out uh, these regions pretty quickly. It's just a couple of paragraphs, but it must have taken some time to travel from Tyre and Sidon down to the Decapolis. So why does Mark take these two stories that are apart, both in time and distance, and put them together? What's clear that Mark is demonstrating for us that Jesus isn't a savior for the Jews only, but he's a savior for all people. He's, he's demonstrating that Jesus Christ came for the nations whether you're a Jew, a Greek, a Samaritan, a Roman, or any other ethnicity. But Mark is also doing something that doesn't jump out at us as we just read these verses, because right before this, Jesus has been engaged in a heavy conflict with Jewish leaders about the law, something that we've seen over and over in Matthew as well. And Jesus is demonstrating the Jews think they can find everything they need in the law, and yet they can't find what they need in the law if they don't find Christ. And so we have these two pictures. We have this group of Jewish leaders, Pharisees, the, 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 Jewish, the, the most Jewish of the Jews, and they can't find Christ. And yet in this woman, this Gentile woman, we find someone and she finds in Jesus all that she needs. So we have two stories that contrast very sharply with the self-important righteousness of Jewish leaders. And what these stories teach us together is that God's word finds its highest revelation in Jesus. And if we miss Jesus, we miss the point of God's revelation. And so the first thing we see here is that Jesus longs for solitude. Jesus longs for solitude, verses 24 and 36. One thing we see in the life of Christ, among others, is that Jesus has this constant rhythm of pouring himself out in ministry to others and then resting, seeking solitude away from the crowds. And his desire for some alone time here is kind of a bookend of the story. We see it at the beginning and then also at the end as he tries to get the crowds to give him some peace and quiet. There are likely a couple of reasons for this. One is Jesus is truly human. I mean, he needs rest. I mean, any of us who thinks we don't, God, God can bring us to a point where we crash and burn. Jesus at this point is a celebrity has grown and it precedes him everywhere he goes. And so the minute the news that Jesus is in town hits the news, he doesn't have a moment's peace. He has to fight for rest. But secondly, Jesus is doing something else. He's preparing his disciples for what's to come. He needs time alone with them as well. You see, the crowds don't understand the nature of Jesus's mission, but neither do Jesus's disciples. The moment for the full messianic revelation hasn't appeared. I mean, we saw this, this cycle of, of work and rest in Jesus' life last week in, in Mark chapter 3. And don't miss the effort that Jesus expends, that he spends trying to find rest, fighting the flow of life toward chaos, toward busyness, just toward being a hectic, crazy life. There are times we see Jesus getting around, away from the crowds to pray to his heavenly Father. Other times he's sleeping in the middle of a storm and just seeking rest and solitude. 
Yet no matter where we find Jesus in these moments of rest, he is constantly fighting for rest. Now there's a tension there, isn't there? There's a, a little bit of an implied paradox to fight for rest. But aren't our lives the same? Doesn't it take great effort to unplug, great effort to find rest? I mean, the flow of life feels like it's constantly toward greater complexity, toward greater and greater busyness, toward a more chaotic, frenetic schedule where we're running around and running around, and then we ask ourselves at some point, why are we even doing all this? So if Jesus, the perfect son of God, constantly battled this tendency, shouldn't we anticipate that life will bring this fight to us, that we'll have to fight to find time for worship and rest? And as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about what a unique moment we are in. As like it or not, God, for many of us, has pressed reset and placed us in a moment of isolation where our lives may be busy or they may not be busy or they may be busy in a different way. But the Lord has disrupted our normal rhythm of life. And one of the things that I think we ought to look for is the importance of rest and renewal. I mean, sometimes it looks for us like sticking our phone, mine is not, but sticking it in a different room, setting it aside and just clearing space and being with God or being with people. Sometimes it looks like clearing the deck emotionally, personally, spiritually. And sometimes it looks like fighting just to gather for worship doing everything we can to meet with brothers and sisters. It's not an obligation. It's a gift that God gives us in love. A father who loves us has given us this gift to rest and restore our spirit. I mean, what's every day like? It should at some level involve waking and sleeping. There's this rhythm of waking and sleeping. And for the Christian life, it involves pouring out and worshiping, being renewed. I mean, Let's not fall into the lie that scheduling our lives so full, even of good things, where we make it hard to find this rhythm of rest and worship, let's not believe the lie that that's not dangerous for our souls. And maybe take a few days this week and ask, as God has hit reset in many ways in our communities, what rhythms is God seeking to lead us into instilling in our lives as a result of this moment. As he disrupts the normal frenetic schedule, what should we take away? What should we keep in this COVID-19 moment? So Jesus longs for solitude, but he sacrifices eventually his solitude for the sake of ministry. Secondly, Jesus exercises great power. He exercises great power, verses 25 to 30 and verses 31 to 37. So we're going to find Jesus now performing two very memorable miracles. These miracles are very different in nature. First, we find a demon-possessed girl who's not even there. She's, she's not actually present. Jesus apparently doesn't even ever see her. The second deals with a, a deaf, dumb man, a mute man who's, who's so close to Jesus that Jesus can actually touch him. In one case, Jesus heals from a distance. In the other case, it's as close and gritty and raw as it get, as Jesus gets, as Jesus touches the man's ears and even his tongue. And in the first story, the story of this demon-possessed little girl, Jesus demonstrates his power over demons and discrimination, power over demons and discrimination in verses 25 to 30. 
So this woman approaches Jesus, and Mark goes out of his way to demonstrate how not a Jew, how unclean this woman is. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Her daughter has an unclean spirit. And when you picture this story in the midst of the confrontation with with scribes and Pharisees, it stands out even more starkly. The Jewish leaders are busy washing their hands and making sure they don't touch any Gentiles. The Gentiles to them are the coronavirus to be avoided at all costs. Meanwhile, this unclean woman comes to Jesus and falls at his feet. A few chapters earlier in Mark, we saw another person fall at Jesus' feet, but this man couldn't be more different from this woman. This man is a man by the name of Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, a Jew of Jews, a man who knew what it was to cleanse himself, a leader of his town. And yet, both the good Jewish man and the unclean Gentile woman approach Jesus with the same desperation. They have a child who is desperately ill. Their child has made them desperate to get to Jesus. They have nowhere else to turn. If you ever experienced a time when you saw your child or your grandchild helpless, sick, injured, you know what it's like in a moment like that to feel like you want to help and there's nothing you can do. You go to the hospital, to the ER, to Jesus to get help. Well, the way Mark describes this woman is an increasingly louder indictment. He does this, he kind of layers these layers of condemnation. First of all, she is a woman. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, that's not good. She is a Gentile. If you know anything else about Jewish culture, that's really not good. Thirdly, she's a member of the Syrophoenician people. And among Jews, they are noted for being remarkably godless, remarkably pagan. Even among unclean people, they're remarkably unclean. She has no right, in fact, she's prohibited from approaching a Jewish rabbi, and yet she comes and falls at his feet. What's her ticket? What's her rite of passage? It's her desperation. That's it. She needs Jesus. Earlier in scripture, we, we encountered a Syrophoenician widow. In 1 Kings chapter 17, this widow, this unclean widow, rescues God's prophet, Elijah. She met him during the famine. And Elijah healed that woman's child too. And yet this introduction to this woman, her desperate dependence, her neediness, brings us to one of the most difficult sections in this story, and really one of the most difficult sections in all of Jesus's ministry. Verse 27, he said to her, she comes to him, she's desperate, she falls at his feet, and he says, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. If there's anything we're expecting to hear from Jesus in this moment, it's not this. I mean, this is shocking to our ears. As we look at the life of Christ, we see Jesus consistently confront proud, self-righteous leaders. But one thing we see over and over again is that he is consistently compassionate to the weak and needy. So if that's the consistent pattern of Jesus' life, why does this seem so different? Well, to Jews, dogs are unclean animals because dogs would eat garbage or dead animals. And Jews had a term for Gentiles. It was essentially mongrel. 
mutt. It's a term of shame. And so keep that in mind as we work through what Jesus may have been doing here. Uh, first of all, we think of dogs and we picture them different than, than people in often third world countries or, or certainly people like this uh, in, in the first century. They viewed dogs as unclean and kind of dirty, mangy animals. For us, dogs are puppies or household pets or something, you know, man's best friend or, you know, they're, they're companions that walk closely with us. In fact, our kids, so a few years ago, we actually got a dog, interestingly enough, named him Charleston, called him Charlie. We had him for two weeks and found out that Grayson is allergic to dogs. So Charlie now lives at Grammy's house and we see him a few times a year, but Charlie does not live with us anymore because it wasn't worth not sleeping at night. But our kids, because we don't have a dog, I guess Joseph occasionally becomes the dog. And so they'll walk around the house and, and, and lead Joseph along, panting like he did. Come on, boy, come on. And, they'll and it's, it's this cute little thing with this, this little dude running around like a dog. And we think of dogs cute, winsome, attractive like that. And Jesus actually kind of puts a turn, a turn of phrase here on, on the term that he uses. So Jews use a, an insult to describe, uh, to describe Gentiles. But Jesus uses a different term. He talks about human, humanity's best friend, our, our best friend, mankind's best friend. He, he refers to a house pet, someone that, that lives with us. And it's, it's not like an insult, it's a term of endearment. I mean, the woman, you see, doesn't recoil from the term, she actually owns it. And so this is a term of actually some affection. It doesn't seem like Jesus is insulting her. But secondly, I think Jesus is confronting the idea of Jewish uncleanness. He's explicitly confronting their legalistic thinking. So he's already confronted the idea that they're worried about unclean food. Meanwhile, their hearts are unclean. And now he says, don't worry about unclean people either. In my kingdom, there aren't unclean people. We all come and we're all cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so there's this conversation here between Jesus and this woman, and it's in miniature, a picture of what is happening in God's plan of redemption. Because Jesus's mission is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And we see this implied the way Jesus answers, let the children be fed first. And he uses a term that implies biological children. But secondly, the woman replies and uses a different term for a child, a, a, a term that refers to biological children and adopted children, a household servants as well. So the woman uses a more inclusive term that heightens Jesus's mission. So Jesus never denies that he's here for the Gentiles, but he's here for the, for the Jews first. Isaiah 49 tells us that God has called us to a global mission. The Messiah will restore the preserved of Israel, but that's too small. And so he is a light to the nation. So this woman here seems to understand Jesus's mission better than any of the Jews, even Jesus's own disciples. Far from being insulted or disappointed, she accepts the fact that he's here to reach Jews and then points to the fact that you're here for all people. You're, you're here in a mission to all peoples. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. Now this word fed, we see twice in Mark, once at the feeding of the 5,000 and once at the feeding of 4,000. It's a word for feeding that means it's, it's like this gigantic feast. There's so much food that there's a surplus. Jesus is saying, there's more than enough grace in me to go around. There's more than enough Jesus for anyone who comes. 
So this woman replies in faith. It's a remarkable demonstration of humility. We've seen these proud Jews, and they're the opposite of faith. And yet this woman comes in humble faith. She returns home and finds her daughter healed. I mean, this is an astounding story. Jesus demonstrates from a distance his power over demons, his remarkable mercy against prejudice. And we sit here today, and we of all people ought to be made happy by this story. We are Gentiles removed for generations from this moment, and yet he includes us. Mark is such a genius in the way he constructs this that he moves point by point toward this inexorable conclusion that Jesus is a redeemer for all people. He shows mercy and grace to anyone who comes to him in faith. I mean, sometimes Jesus sticks his finger in the face of discrimination, but here he's subtle, he's almost clever in the way he does this. Jesus fought the flow of life toward busyness, and here Jesus fights the flow of life toward sinful discrimination. Christians of all people should find ways, sometimes confrontational, sometimes subtle, but to debunk the trends of our culture toward discrimination. We should also repent of it when we find it in our hearts. Jesus is near to the brokenhearted, and the gospel compels us to be near to them too. The only time we really know we've understood God's love, the only time we really know we've understood the flow of the gospel is when the gospel costs us, when flowing with the gospel flows against the grain of the world and it costs us. So let's shine as lights in a world full of darkness. Jesus demonstrates power over demons and discrimination. He also demonstrates power over senses and disability with this man. Power over the senses and disability, verses 31 to 37. Now Jesus is 120 miles south. He's, he's moved from, from the northern region now down to another Gentile region, the Decapolis, this, these 10 cities. The last time Jesus was here, uh, the, the, the crowds had begged him to leave. He had, he had healed this demon-possessed man, and it wrought a great craziness in the area, and they begged him to leave. But now they come to see him, perhaps because of the changed life that they've seen in the demoniac. Some folks bring to Jesus a deaf man who can barely speak. In Isaiah 35, Isaiah writes, They shall see the glory of the Lord, and the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When God's glory is revealed, the mute sing for joy at who God is. Jesus shows great compassion for this man the moment he's going through. He pulls him aside, steps away from the crowd, and cares for him privately. This man is probably a Gentile as well because he's in a Gentile region. Jesus doesn't see this man's disability as something to recoil from, but something to lean into, a person made in the image of God with full human dignity. Jesus touches him, which itself is a sign of compassion, and he even touches the man's tongue. Now, Mark has placed these two stories side by side. How did Jesus heal the woman's daughter from a distance? He didn't need to be, he doesn't need it to be there. So why does Mark now demonstrate Jesus's touch? It's a sign to us of Jesus's remarkable compassion, his remarkable love for this man. He breathes the prayer to heaven and says, be open, the man is healed. The man can hear and he can now speak correctly. Jesus comes to set the prisoner free and he sets this man free from his impediments. This man's life itself is a picture of the gospel. 
We're all born into this world impaired by sin, deaf to the gospel, deaf to the word of God. We can't properly relate to and properly communicate with God apart from God's grace. And the gospel is the message that though everyone is born deaf to God's voice, Jesus comes to make the blind see, the deaf hear, to set the prisoner free, let the mute speak. Everyone who comes to Christ is healed from rebellion, spiritual deafness, and sin sickness. So what do we bring to Jesus? Nothing but our impediments. But when we come to him in humble faith, he raises us up and leads us from death to life, from pagan worship to worship of the true king. If you're with us this morning and you don't know Jesus, would you turn from your sin and trust him in humble faith? today. This leads us, now we've seen Jesus's power, and it leads us to people's response. People respond in amazement, but not in true worship. They respond in amazement, but not true worship. The final two verses, 36 and 37. Jesus, as he goes throughout his ministry, he commands people to keep quiet about his miracles. This is probably due to the fact that his celebrity is so great that if if, if people trumpet it, he he can't even move. He can't go anywhere. But it's also because the miracles aren't the point. They aren't the point of the mission. They point to Jesus's mission. He's here to rescue us from our greatest enemy, sin. But amazement isn't the same as submission. There's a contrast here. The response of the Gentile woman and the crowd. Jesus commands discretion. And the more he commands discretion, the more the crowd trumpets. It ignores his word. Verse 36, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now, this is, not a com- this is not a commendation of them. This is not good because Jesus is asking something from them, and they're not doing it. Even as they acknowledge the truth about what Jesus has done, verse 37, he has done all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They miss the true nature of Jesus' mission. He came to seek and save the lost. Well, in this respect, the Gentile crowds and the Jewish crowds are the same. They love what Jesus can do for them, but they haven't truly embraced him for all he is and for all that he requires of them. You see, whether you're Jew or Gentile, knowing about Jesus isn't the same as embracing Jesus in faith. And true faith in Christ is always evidenced by glad submission to the word of Christ. Well, this entire section is written in contrast to the legalism of the scribes and Pharisees that happened just before this. In John chapter 5, Jesus confronts the Pharisees with this truth. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, God's word finds its highest revelation in Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the whole Old Testament cannot give life. Yet as we dig into God's word, if we look for Jesus, we will find life. Let's not read our Bibles like the Pharisees. A Pharisee sees words. A faith-filled scripture of a faith-filled reader of scripture sees life giving words because those words point us to Jesus Christ. And when we see Jesus in the word, it changes us. So how should this passage change us this morning? Jesus has just confronted Jewish leaders, and yet now we find him with the Gentiles. 
Jesus knows what this means for him to his Jewish audience. Loving Gentiles is not good news to the Jewish crowds. And yet Jesus risks his reputation in love for others. He engages with a notoriously pagan woman. He touches this unclean man's ears and tongue. Bodily fluid, including saliva, make you unclean under the law and tradition. And yet Jesus risked his own uncleanness to help this man. What place does loving gospel risk play in our discipleship? I mean, this ministry that Jesus has is a ministry of mercy, and yet he risks his reputation. And we live in a world where as followers of Christ, the world will lead us to increasingly confront our reputation in relationships at work, relationships at school, in our communities. Now, our minds run to what these risks might be, but this week it might look like a smaller yet more tangible risk for you. It might mean that you leave work at work to invest in your family. It might mean that you risk a friendship to share the truth in love. It might mean that you sacrifice career advancement for the sake of pursuing a commitment to your local church. If we walk through life, we read God's word, and yet we miss Jesus, we miss the point of scripture and the point of life itself. Don't miss Jesus. And don't miss the fruit that his presence inevitably brings, a remarkably sacrificial, cost-inducing love for others. We're going to close this morning and we'll sing of our hope in Christ alone, Christ who is the cornerstone.